Moby Dick or The Whale by Herman Melville Chapter 79 The Prairie To scan the lines of his face Or feel the bumps on the head of this leviathan This is a thing which no physiognomist or phrenologist Has as yet undertaken Such an enterprise would seem almost as hopeful as for Lavater to have scrutinized the wrinkles on the rock of Gibraltar, or for Gaul to have mounted a ladder and manipulated the dome of the Pantheon. Still, in that famous work of his, Lavater not only treats of the various faces of men, but also attentively studies the faces of horses, birds, serpents, and fish, and dwells in detail upon the modifications of expression discernible therein. Nor have Gaul and his disciple Spurzheim failed to throw out some hints touching the phrenological characteristics of other beings than man. Therefore, Though I am but ill-qualified for a pioneer, in the application of these two semi-sciences to the whale, I will do my endeavor. I try all things. I achieve what I can. Physiognomically regarded, the sperm whale is an anomalous creature. He has no proper nose. And since the nose is the central and most conspicuous of the features, and since it perhaps most modifies and finally controls their combined expression, hence it would seem that its entire absence as an external appendage must very largely affect the countenance of the whale. For as in landscape gardening, a spire, cupola, monument or tower of some sort is deemed almost indispensable to the completion of the scene so no face can be physiognomically in keeping without the elevated openwork belfry of the nose dash the nose from Phidias's marble jove and what a sorry remainder Nevertheless, Leviathan is of so mighty a magnitude, all his proportions are so stately, that the same deficiency which in the sculptured Jove were hideous, in him is no blemish at all. Nay, it is an added grandeur. A nose to the whale would have been impertinent. As on your physiognomical voyage you sail round his vast head in your jolly boat, your noble conceptions of him are never insulted by the reflection that he has a nose to be pulled. A pestilent conceit, which so often will insist upon obtruding even when beholding the mightiest royal beetle on his throne. In some particulars, perhaps, the most imposing physiognomical view to be had of the sperm whale is that of the full front of his head.
This aspect is sublime. In thought, a fine human brow is like the east when troubled with the morning. In the repose of the pasture, the curled brow of the bull has a touch of the grand in it. Pushing heavy cannon up mountain defiles, the elephant's brow is majestic. The mystical brow is as that great golden seal affixed by the German emperors to their decrees. It signifies God, done this day by my hand. But in most creatures, nay in man himself, very often the brow is but a mere strip of alpine land lying along the snow line. You are the foreheads which, like Shakespeare's or Melanchthon's, rise so high and descend so low that the eyes themselves seem clean, eternal, tideless mountain lakes. And all above them in the forehead's wrinkles, you seem to track the antlered thoughts descending there to drink, as the highland hunters track the snow prints of the deer. But in the great sperm whale, this high and mighty godlike dignity inherent in the brow is so immensely amplified that gazing on it in that full front view, you feel the deity and the dread powers more forcibly than in beholding any other object in living nature. For you see no one point precisely. Not one distinct feature is revealed. No nose, eyes, ears, or mouth. No face. He has none proper. Nothing but that one broad firmament of a forehead. Pleated with riddles, dumbly lowering with the doom of boats and ships and men. Nor in profile does this wondrous brow diminish. Though that way viewed, its grandeur does not domineer upon you so. In profile, you plainly perceive that horizontal semi-crescentic depression in the forehead's middle, which in man is Lavater's mark of genius. But how? Genius in the sperm whale? Has the sperm whale ever written a book, spoken a speech? No. His great genius is declared in his doing nothing particular to prove it. It is, moreover, declared in his pyramidical silence. And this reminds me that had the great sperm whale been known to the young Orient world, he would have been deified by their child magician thoughts. They deified the crocodile of the Nile. Because the crocodile is tongueless, and the sperm whale has no tongue. Or at least it is so exceedingly small as to be incapable of protrusion. If hereafter any cultured poetical nation shall lure back to their birthright 
the merry mayday gods of old and livingly enthroned them again in the now egotistical sky, in the now unhaunted hill, then be sure exalted to Jove's high seat, the great sperm whale shall lord Champollion deciphered the wrinkled granite hieroglyphics, but there is no Champollion to decipher the Egypt of every man's and every being's face. Physiognomy, like every other human science, is but a passing fable. If then Sir William Jones, who read in thirty languages, could not read the simplest peasant's face in its profounder and more subtle meanings, how may unlettered Ishmael hope to read the awful shaldi of the sperm whale's brow? I put but that brow before you. Read it, if you can. <laughs>